Hey, how's it going everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 21 of the Essential X Lapsed, where we're going to be kicking off a three-part story. Uh, just a little bit ago, we finished up a two-parter with the Juggernaut. Today, we start a three-parter with the Sentinels. And, uh, boy, this issue feels very, very long, so we probably should just hop right in. Uh, this is X-Men number 14. Had a November 1965 cover date. The story is called Among Us Stalk, The Sentinels. Written and edited by Stan Lee, layouts Jack Kirby, pencils Werner Roth as Jay Gavin, inks Vince Coletta, letters Artie Simic, colors probably a sentient pile of crayons, markers, and colored pencils, cover price 12 cents, and now X-Men is monthly. So uh, every single month we're going to be getting an issue of X-Men for... Uh, well, for a little while. So, let's open this one up here. Uh, we actually open right in the aftermath of the Juggernaut attack that we discussed, you know, a couple episodes ago. And uh, the male X-Men are all engaging in a bit of rehab. Angel's hanging from the ceiling in full traction. Cyclops is wearing a Big Daddy helmet from Bioshock. Beast is walking on crutches. And Kid Cool is sitting inside a giant ice cube. Now, it's worth noting here that uh, Scott claims to have been worried that Juggernaut caused him to strain his cursed optic blasts to the point beyond repair. And, well, uh, I mean, hasn't he been in the market to deep-six those cursed powers anyway? Like, shouldn't he been hoping for that? Also, uh, Beast says that he feels just as vulnerable as a plain old homo sapien. And Xavier warns not to be cocky about mutant superiority, and uh, I figure we will save that kind of talk for 2019 on. Xavier looks at a clipboard and decides, yep, the fellas are all healed up, and they can be taken out of their emergency therapy gimmicks. So Warren can remove his harness and try flying again. Beast can drop the crutches and get back to trapezing all over the place. Bobby can come in from out of the cold, though he's a bit reluctant to do so. He just loves sitting in a giant ice cube. Um, maybe that's why it's his go-to move every time an evil mutant attacks. Huh? Uh, Xavier warns that he, if he were to remain any longer in the ice cube, he will suffer freeze feedback. And I think that's uh, what happens when you sip a Slurpee too quickly. The professor then announces that he's got a big surprise for his teenage charges. You see, after all their hard work, he's sending them on vacation. Now Cyclops lifts his diving helmet to cheer, and this might be the first genuine smile we've ever seen on his face yet. Our scene shifts to a small press conference taking place somewhere in the city. There, a man named Bolivar Trask, one of the world's leading anthropologists, has a declaration that threatens to shake Krakoa to its very... I mean... Wait, wrong show. Uh, he just has a plain old announcement that will shock the world. You see, it's time. It's time for some fear and hate to seep back into these books. Trask warns that mutants are a menace just waiting to strike. They're mankind's most deadly enemy, and they must be taken down before they gain any more power. And I wonder what Trask would think of uh, the uh, Hoxpox era here. Huh. And so, the Lemming reporters take Trask's word for it, plain as day, and the next day's front-page news is all about the mutant menace. So, uh, fact-checking, be damned. Uh, it's worth noting that the newspaper we see is the Daily Globe. And I gotta ask, just who in the hell is handling distribution for the Bugle around now? Nobody's reading the damn thing. Anyway, back to Xavier's. We see Bobby helping Warren pin down his wings. Huh. Well, that's a familiar scene to some of us, isn't it? It's the same exact scene that they plucked to stuff into Marvel's Voices Pride special, which we covered in episode 226 of the main show. 
So I guess we already know the ending here. This story is going to end with Magneto about to strike at the mansion with missiles, right? Well, no, of course not, because Magneto is off with the stranger, and whoever wrote that story just flipped through these early Silver Agers long enough to find Bobby touching Warren, context be damned. Anyway, Warren reveals that his wings didn't sprout till he went to military school, which was how he was able to hide them from his parents, which uh, answers a question from a letters page not too long ago. Now, he's heading home to be with his folks for his vacation, so uh, I guess he's got to keep it on the down low. Over in Cyclops' room, he prepares to change out of his visor and into his ruby quartz shades. For some reason, though, he has to open his visor before removing it? I'm not sure what the gimmick here is, but uh, the ruby glass like rolls up revealing his closed peepers. And I'm guessing this is just answering another thing from the letters pages, just to show us how they work. Uh, it just seems like an extra step to me, you know, yanking off a head sock and slapping on a pair of glasses, but uh, what do I know? Next, to Hank, who is slipping on his gimmicked booties and foot girdles. Then, during Stanley's second favorite time elapsement later, moments later, the kids are ready to skidoo. Now, Scott is saddened to learn that Gene will be getting a ride to the train station from Warren. Gene invites Scott to come along with them, but alas, Warren's hoopty only seats two, and that's by design. Now, Scott, he acts all aloof here, claiming that he's taking a later, later train anyway, so it doesn't matter. Then to the foyer, where the kids ask Professor X where he'll go for his vacation. To which, he reminds them all that the Xavier Mansion is, you know, Xavier's house. I mean, go figure, right? So he'll be staying here. The gang lets him know that they're just a psychic call away. And I don't know if this means that Xavier will have to wear his Mento helmet, or have we already forgotten about that? I don't know. So, Warren and Jean leave first. Then, Bobby and Hank. Finally, Scott. Now, Xavier watches Scott walk into the horizon and is saddened by his field leader's crippling loneliness. Now, once the kids are gone, Xavier looks at today's edition of the Daily Globe, and, well, duh, it's all about the mutant menace. And there's a pretty iconic image in the paper of a mutant overlord, like, whipping humans and forcing them into slavery. And we would see this imagery a few times over the years, uh, notably in some of Quentin Quire's earliest appearances during the uh, Morrison run. Now, the newspaper also includes artist renditions of mutant leaders and humans forced into gladiatorial sport. Xavier thinks to himself that he cannot let this misinformation get out uncontested. And so, he calls a local television station to challenge Bolivar Trash to a public and televised debate. And the station immediately promises to arrange everything. Which is <laughs> a little bit simple, isn't it? I mean, shouldn't they see if Trask is even interested first? Oh well. Well then, lickety-split, Xavier and Trask are on a televised panel show preparing to have their back and forth on the mutant menace. And, you know, for a dude who doesn't want people to know he's a mutant, he sure makes a lot of public appearances with and for the mutants. Plus, I mean, you know, his last name is Xavier. The leading mutant hero team is called the X-Men. The X-Men's helicopter is seen taking off and landing from his backyard. Bobby and Scott once hitched a ride on an ice cream truck to the mansion's front door. I could go on, but nah. Um, in any event, he is introduced as an articulate spokesman for America's intellectual community, which is something I'm going to immediately add to my business card. Anyway, Xavier makes his plea that mutants aren't to be hated nor feared. They're just different. And we see some reactions from TV land. We see a teenage girl who thinks it would be really groovy if the old creepy bald dude was a mutant himself. So I guess, uh, you know, out of the mouths of babes. 
And then some uninformed types assume that uh, Xavier must be a pinko commie or something. Next, it's Trask's turn to rebut, right? And, you know, rather than just standing up and saying, <clears throat> Magneto, as proof that mutants are to be feared and hated, he makes the crazy eyes at the camera and starts brandishing a remote control. Because, you see, he's about to introduce the world to the Sentinels. Now, to prove how effective they are at restraining mutants, Trask decides to pretend that Charles Xavier himself is a mutant. And so a sentinel enters through the curtain and places hands on the prof. The moderator for the debate is just absolutely gobsmacked. He's somehow shocked that there are like a dozen 12-foot-tall, gaudy-as-hell robots in his backstage area. Like, he really didn't notice this? They're, they're kind of hard to miss. Anyway, Trask then walks over to his robots and goes to demonstrate how they respond to his every command. And then, well... A sentinel blasts him with its beam. Um, it's not quite as graphic or as iconic as the cover of Uncanny 142, but it's in that vein. Xavier's not at all surprised by this turn of events. After all, Trask is an anthropologist and not a robotics expert. He then calls a red alert for the X-Men to assemble. And it makes me wonder, are there other colored alerts? Like, is there a purple alert? A gold alert? I mean, so far all we've seen is red. Anyway, we should probably go fetch the kids, right? So let's do that thing here. First, we're going to go to Bobby and Hank, who are spending their vacation at the Coffee A Go Go. That's, I mean, they go there often. I don't know. Okay. Uh, Hank is especially troubled because Bernard the Poet is starting to make sense to him. So I guess the LSD finally kicked in. Now let's see if you can all understand Bernie the P here. He says, like it's out to be in and it's square to be hip. I mean, dig that scene, a nap isn't a nip. And I can confirm that a nip and a nap are two different things, but that's about as far as I can go. Anyway, the professor's mento-helmetless psychic call is answered, and the fellas jam out. Unfortunately for Bobby, this means walking out on the lovely Zelda, who actually doesn't look like a gangster in a wig since Kirby's not penciling her, so that's a good thing. The guys change into their X-Togs, and Bobby even pulls on his little booties, and they ice-slide toward the station. Next, we're off to Long Island's affluent North Shore at Worthington Manor. And I lived on the South Shore, which was, uh, well, besides my family, pretty affluent as well back in the 80s and 90s. Uh, Warren gets the psychic call and excuses himself. His parents are both very understanding, uh, because he claims that he forgot something back at the school. They say, hey, you know, we'll, we'll always be there to support you, and whatever you need, just ask. So, uh, pretty sweet. Anyway, Warren leaves and takes to the sky. Back to the TV station, a group of Sentinels have snatched Bolivar up, and they head back to wherever it is that Sentinels live. Don't worry, we will see the place soon enough. Uh, it looks like two Sentinels, but then it looks like just one. <laughs> it changes over the course of the next few pages. Uh, remain at the station. It looks like two, it looks like one, who knows. Uh, they, or it, holds the whole place hostage. Now, Xavier engages in some mental manipulation to keep the studio audience from panicking and making the situation so much worse. Just then, Bobby and Hank arrive, possibly to make the situation so much worse. A beast bounces off the Sentinel's head and deftly dodges some lasers. Iceman makes the floor all slippery, causing the Sentinel to slam to the ground. Xavier fills Kid Cool in on what these Sentinels are all about, but this causes enough of a distraction that neither man noticed that the Sentinel already pulled itself back up to its feet and blasted Bobby with a bolt of heat. I could be Bernard the Poet. Meanwhile, Scott Summers is in a yellow cab, hightailing it to the studio, when suddenly, 
Whoops, his ruby quartz shades spontaneously fall off his face, causing an optic blast to blow out the cabbie's windshield. Scott reaffixes his glasses and flees the scene. Unfortunately for him, an angry mob saw this whole thing play out and are hot on his trail, just seething with fear and hate. Scott manages to lose them right outside the TV studio and rushes inside. While climbing a flight of stairs, he changes into his ex-togs and arrives at the field of battle, just in time to narrowly miss a sentinel fist. And, uh, you know, talk about wonky perspective here. This is one huge, huge fist for a relatively small sentinel. This is like, this is like 1980s, 1990s era sentinel-sized fist here, but uh, I don't know. Now, I know we're all about suspension of disbelief, Yes. But now knowing that the TV studio was up a flight of stairs, because Cyclops did have to go up a flight of stairs, at least one, just how in the hell did Trask get the Sentinels in without anyone noticing? I mean, they had to literally go upstairs. I I don't know. Anyway, the battle continues, with Beast jumping headfirst into a wall. Like, really, he torpedoes himself, headbutting the ever-loving hell out of a wall. Naturally, he's KO'd. Then, when all looks lost, the Sentinel begins to seize up, and collapses. At this point, Xavier releases the audience from his mental control and informs everyone that the X-Men have saved the day. He then thinks to himself that he's got to get to the bottom of why this big old bot seized up on itself. Meanwhile, Angel is still flying toward the studio and happens across a swarm of sentinels. The swarm of sentinels, in fact. And he immediately realizes that they must be the reason for Xavier's red alert. As you might imagine, the Sentinels recognize Warren as a mutant, and they go on the attack. Thankfully, Warren's only danger room exercise is avoiding blasts, and his only weakness is flying into nets, so he's pretty safe here. No nets, so it's good. He is then yanked downward, where he slams back first on a passing train. And, I mean, dude dropped probably ten stories, like a stone, right? And it looks like he hit pretty hard. The Sentinels... They might be part ostrich, uh, because they've already forgotten about him, and they continue on their merry way. Turns out that Warren was yanked to the train because Jean Grey TK'd him down there from inside the thing. Okay. Jean then flies for the very first time to greet him. Back to the studio, Xavier and the ex-fellas are surrounding the fallen sentinel, looking kind of like guys who pretend to know what they're looking at under the hood of, hood of their car, you know? And the teens talk here a lot. I mean, there are more words in this panel than in many current-year issues altogether. Xavier finally tells them all to shut up at their faces, because, get this, he is getting mental images from this robot. Yeah, really, and Xavier himself can't even believe it, so I guess, uh, I guess that excuses it. From this, he's able to deduce the Sentinel's headquarters. Oh, and also Warren and Jean, they finally show up now. Xavier tells the assembled team that the key to this whole Mishigas might be hidden behind the words Master Mold. You see, Master Mold is the only thought in the dead Sentinel's head. From here, we rejoin the Sentinels, wherever the hell they're hiding out. We will find out soon. Trask orders them to release him, to which they remind him that they don't take orders anymore. They then shove him into the Master Chamber so that he can create more of them. Now, he refuses, but... I don't think they're listening. Now, the Master Chamber is not the Master Mold that we know. This is like a uh, like a giant version of one of those static electricity globe things that you would touch at the museum during a field trip at school that makes your hair stand up on end. So this isn't the Master Mold. This is just the Master Chamber. We will meet the Master Mold next time. 
Now, Trask pleads, claiming that he's friends with the Sentinels. But alas, Sentinels are robots, and they've got no need for friends. Then, something pings on the Sentinels' radar. There's a certain Rolls-Royce headed their way. Of course, it's the X-Men, who have to uh, stop everything to get Xavier's wheelchair out of the trunk before they can act, which is a... uh, it's an interesting attention to detail. Not something that you'd uh, usually see given any panel time. So it's neat to see it. It's still, it still kind of like takes you out of the story a little bit. Just then, from the vacant field they arrived at, rises a secret fortress that immediately begins blasting at them. Where did all these lasers come from back in the Silver Age? I mean, it's just insane. Maybe we'll find out next time. No, no, we totally won't. But that is where we end this issue, part one of three of the opening Sentinel Salvo saga. Next episode, we'll do part two. But right now, let's hop into the letters page here. These are always a a fun time here. We're going to start with Mike in California. And Mike, well, he's got some gripes. And he's numbered them, which is great. One, the X-Men rely on Professor X too much. Uh, and they've also built up this don't harm a human thing, which, uh, well, Mike, if you were still reading in uh, 2019, I, I wonder what you thought. Um, he also suggests that Xavier could have altered the Mandarin's mind. Did we miss an issue where the X-Men fought the Mandarin? Eh, I don't know. But, uh, yeah, over-relying on Professor X is, uh, that's just kind of the way these books went back in the day, isn't it? Uh, the X-Men would do whatever they could, they'd get beaten, and then Professor X would come in and uh, do something mentally spectacular. It's uh, kind of a trope at this point. Mike's gripe number two, the costumes suck! He says they're about as interesting as a carton of eggs, and worth noting, Mike also hates the Fantastic Four's costumes. He hates so many things. What is he, me? <clears throat> Rumor has it. Uh, Three, he wants to see a romance between Gene and Scott. Four, stop cluttering the covers of Marvel mags with, quote, a lot of garbage about how great you guys are. He suggests that Stan is so egotistical that he may as well just put photos of his head on the cover. And, uh, I mean, don't give him any ideas here. Uh, Stan basically ignores the entirety of this letter, except for the last bit. And he replies that last issue's cover of The Juggernaut was actually a photo of Artie Simic. So a perfect, perfect Stan reply. Next, John in New Mexico also has gripes. He's tired of Stan blowing hot air about how great Marvel is. He uh, says that Brand X Comics, you know, DC, National, they're pretty good as well. So check yourself, Stan. John does not like continuing stories. One and done only, please, since Marvel mags sell out so quickly at the newsstand. And, uh, John, you are not going to like the direction of the industry over the next half century, I tell you what. Now, Stan tells Jolly John to, uh, maybe get your ass to the newsstand before the mags sell out. And he tells him to practice his sprinting over the next month so he can beat the other geeks to the racks. Another perfect Stan reply here, and uh, addresses something that I mentioned, I believe, last episode or the episode before that about uh, the continuing story. And how, uh, to me, that's something of a comfort food, but to the fans of the day, that's just a, uh, a frustration, right? You get to something with a, with a very, very clear and blatant to-be-continued at the end of it, and you're just like, crap, am I going to be able to get part two? Or you pick up something that is definitely picking up from a story that has already started, and you missed it. You know, I, I can totally understand their frustration. Next, Norman in NYC. He thinks that X-Men number 12 was the greatest story he's ever read. 
but he wonders why Doctor Strange didn't get involved with all the Sidorakian hoodoo going on. And Stan says that the good doctor was busy taking on Baron Mordo over in Strange Tales, and uh, maybe you ought to read that. Jerry in Oklahoma. Now, he was very disappointed in X-Men number 12 because he hated Alex Toth's artwork, which was a, which is a weird uh, take. I thought it was very good, and um, certainly a step up from Jack Kirby kind of phoning it in over a few issues there where he was clearly overworked, or clearly through my um, projecting eyes, <laughs> overworked by his, uh, you know, his bundle of pages here. Now, Jerry suggests uh, maybe tossing Dick Ayers on S.H.I.E.L.D., so that Jack has more time for the X-Men. Now, Stan explains that they're juggling artists around right now, trying to find their best fit, and he asks Jerry how he liked Jay Gavin's work on this issue. So maybe, maybe Jerry will write in again and we'll find out. Next up, Roger in Massachusetts. He asks, does the angel molt? And I mean, I've already gone down this tropey lane before, but picture it. Okay, Roger... He took out his stationery and pen, probably his Merry Marvel Marching Society stationery. He scrawled this question down, folded the paper in three, carefully placed it in an envelope, wrote Marvel's address on said envelope, licked and affixed a stamp to the right-hand corner of the envelope, walked to a mailbox, dropped the letter inside, all to ask this stupid question. <clears throat> Boy. Uh, Stan says that he'll ask the angel just as soon as he's done pecking at his breakfast bird seed. So, another perfect Stan answer. Next up, Bill in California. He loves, loves the X-Men. He wants to know if the angel's wings are really attached to his body. He'd like to see Cyclops enjoy life more. And he comments that some letter hacks want Professor X out of the book, but he wants him to stick around. He likes the X-Men's costumes, and he wants to see them goofing around more. So, uh, hey, you asked for it, Raj. Uh, more coffee a go-go for you. Um, now, Stan says that he'll watch some Three Stooges films for ideas. So, uh, they're, uh, gonna be goofing around some more. And also, the angel's wings are real. And we did see evidence of that right here in today's issue. Next up, Donald in Ohio. And he's, uh... He's got some very odd stats here to, uh, to give us. Um, he says that the Juggernaut is twice as strong as the Hulk. And twice as invulnerable. So he doesn't want to see the Hulk ever referred to again as the most powerful being on Earth. I'm... I'm not sure where he's getting his data. Uh, was there like a Marvel trading card set with power rankings back in 1965 that I don't know about? Was there an Ohatmu back in 1965 with power rankings? I, I don't know. Well, Stan replies that old Juggy just bit the dust. So it's a moot point. And uh, I guess that's confirmation that Xavier killed his stepbrother in issue uh, 13 there. So, how about that? Next up, we have PETA in New York. He loved issue 12, and he wants to see an X-Men t-shirt. And indeed, there is a picture of an X-Men t-shirt in this very issue. Now, he asks why Cerebro reacted to the Juggernaut, which is a great question that we've asked a few times already. He also claims that the X-Men hit the local newsstand two weeks late. And he threatens to riot if this were to ever happen again. And he'd also like to figure out how to pronounce Sidorak. Now, Stan apologizes for the lateness of the ish, despite it not being his fault at all. He says that Sidorak is pronounced just like Midorak. So that's a good Stan answer. And he refuses to address why Cerebro was able to pick up on the Juggernaut. So uh, I tell you, I smell a no-prize opportunity. Is anybody going to be able to pick that ball up and run with it? Next up, John in Pennsylvania. 
he congratulates Stan and Jack on their two-year X-anniversary. And he loves the book so much that he claims it would suck if Jack Kirby stopped drawing it. So this is such a great book that if you were to remove the artist, it would just suck. Uh, he also hates that he has to wait two months for each issue. And of course, with this issue, we're monthly. So he doesn't have to worry about that anymore. Though Jack Kirby is going to be just doing layouts, so maybe he does have something to worry about. I don't know. Wrapping up with H. Doyle in Illinois. Now, he takes issue with the historians who took issue with Stan and Jack's dinosaur boner back in issue 10. Now, he attempts to no-prize why dinos from desperate eras are all in the savage land. And he really should have just saved his energy here and just said, uh, it's comics, you know, but I appreciate his effort, and Stan does too. H. Doyle wants more Kazar, and Stan says he'll think about it. Those are the letters now into some announcements. We got announcements and bullpens here. The bullpens are on their own page, which uh, Stan is very, very proud of. So we will get to that right after the announcements. The big announcement is that X-Men, Daredevil, and Sergeant Fury are now monthly. So every magnificent Marvel mag hits the shelves 12 times a year. There's some news on the Merry Marvel Marching Society, and uh, you can still join up for the cost of... Well, they don't say here, but uh, it will say somewhere else. Uh, you'll get your Marvel stationery. You'll get your X-Men t-shirt. Uh, Stan says to, uh, he says to save your shekels. Those are his words, not mine. Uh, because there's going to be a new gizmo coming soon from Marvel. I'm not sure what this gizmo is. Hopefully we'll find out as we continue. And for the next issue of X-Men, well, Stan doesn't want to spoil the surprise, which is to say he probably doesn't know just yet. I'll bet it has something to do with those gaudy robots, though. Now on to the bullpen bulletins on their own page. We get some announcements here. Joe Sinnott is back at Marvel. Stan also announces that Adam Austin is only a pen name for a famous artist, and they'll reveal who that is soon. And hey, we just discussed that, so how about that? Uh, from here, Stan pimps his magazines, Monsters Unlimited, which we've talked about before, also something called You Don't Say. Now, You Don't Say is kind of like Monsters Unlimited as it uses photos with humorous word balloons. Humorous, in quotes. Um, it's satirical American fumetti. And uh, maybe it was funny back in the mid-60s. Uh, you could find bits and bobs of this online, so I guess you can be the judge. Though I will say, if the idea of uh, JFK saying silly things makes you giggle, then this mag might be right up your alley. Another announcement, Jack Kirby penciled and inked some pinups in this year's annual, so if you are a fan of the King's work, you got some pinups. They also announced that there are 25 new Merry Marvel marchers, and their names and hometowns are listed below. Uh, none of these names stand out to me. I do wonder if we'll see, like, a future Comics Pro or someone that uh, we've heard of in these pages somewhere down the line. I, I hope so, because that, that could be pretty fun. Uh, finally, Professor X taunts us with a mysterious mailing tube. I wonder if that's the gizmo. Stan says he'll announce what's inside it next issue. Finally, we have the mighty Marvel Checklist. Fantastic Four number 45 has Inhuman stuff. Medusa's origin, Gorgon's grossness. I am bored just from the paragraph here. Spider-Man number 31, the master planner plots against Spidey. Avengers number 22, the Avengers face their first defeat. Daredevil number 10 is touted as a real collector's item, as it features Wally Wood on script. Thor number 122 has the Absorbing Man taking on Odin himself. Strange Tales 139 features Fury, Prisoner of Hydra. 
and also Doctor Strange vs. Baron Mordo. Suspense number 72, uh, Iron Man faces a daringly different threat, whoever that might be, and Cap faces the Sleeper. Astonished 74, Namor gives up his quest, and the Hulk returns to Earth, just a little too late to attend the wedding of Reed and Sue. Last and, uh, well, your mileage may vary if this is least or not, we got Sergeant Fury number 24, and it features the Howlers on furlough. So with all that said, uh, how about I muddle my way through telling you all how I feel about this issue. The problem with these Silver Age issues is that they're a lot of fun, but they're silly. And I feel like that's what I say every single time out. You know, uh, if we had a bingo card, silly would be in one square, fun would be in another. And uh, they would basically always be checked off because these Silver Age stories are both. They're silly and they're fun. Something else about these early issues is when Stan wants to focus on the fear and hate angle, it is, uh, it's pretty ham-fisted, right? It's usually like a turn-on-a-dime sort of thing. You don't need any credibility to make people, to, like, foment the fear and hate. Like, when the Beast saved that little kid who was on the water tower back in issue 8, you know? It's like, just some dude on the street's like, he probably planted her there! And it's like, oh, hate the mutants, let's get the torches, and... It was just like, that's how quickly it flipped. And here we just have like a like a little crew of reporters hanging out with Bolivar Trask as he shows them, you know, pencil drawings of big-headed mutants whipping humans into uh, submission and enslavement. And that's all it takes to get a front-page news story. And granted, I was not around in the mid-60s, so I don't know how uh, highly regarded the press was back then. I know... I know a lot of folks question what we uh, hear on the news these days, but uh, I wonder if it was the same in 1965, where people are like, eh, maybe this isn't quite legit. Or if they see this in the paper on the front page of the uh, the Globe, or whatever the hell it was, and they're just like, uh-oh, mutants are bad. But of course, these aren't being written to be analyzed by some uh, 40-year-old idiot uh, half-century later. So we keep it simple, take what we get, and uh, and enjoy it for, for what it is. And what it is, is a uh, setup issue. We're going to be digging deeper into this over the course of the next couple of episodes here, so some of the questions that are raised in this issue will be uh, attended to over the course of the next couple here. Why did that Sentinel collapse at the TV studio? We'll find out all about that. We'll find out about the Master Mold and Trask's uh, final fate, and uh, maybe even a few more things along the way. But um, I think that's all i got to say about the issue. Like I said, it's mostly a setup issue. Um, Had a lot of fun with it. I can't deny that. The art here by uh, our friend J. Gavin Werner-Roth was quite good. It was quite good. But I think that's all I have to say about this issue, and that'll bring us to... uh, to our conclusion here, um, if anybody out there would like to write in, I would love for you to do so. You could find me several different ways. You could find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. You can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. Or you can call into the X-Lapse voicemail hotline at 623-396-JERK. For blog posts and show notes, you can head over to chrisoninfiniteearths.com. There is also, I haven't mentioned this in a while, there's xlapsed.chrisoninfiniteearths.com, which has... Every show on it. It's just the X-Lapse stuff, Essential X-Lapse, the Sunday specials, all there uh, in nice tile format, so you know exactly what you're getting when you click on it. It's uh, it's pretty neat, and I probably spend way too much time there just flipping through them all, because, uh, well, I'm a damaged human being, I suppose. Um, you can find us on Facebook. Our little group is 90s X-Men, always having some fun conversation in there. 
And finally, for all your Chris and Reggie comics commentary listening needs, you can head to chrisandreggie.podbean.com. That's available on all noise and sound aggregates around this world wide web. But that's going to do it for me. I'd like to thank you all so much for allowing me to be part of your day today. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.